0: I'm with Gavin, Victor Kilo 2 Bravo Alpha X-Ray. You've just come back from Heard Island. What was that like?
1: Oh, it was amazing. Um, for me, my job there was to work as one of the field teams. So we had a, a science team of two of us. And our objective was to get out and around the island as much as possible, uh, collect the geograf- uh, geological samples, also picking up uh, water samples wherever we came across the glacial streams, freshwater streams um, and the other one we're after was uh, soil samples so um, under the glacier edges picking up dirt there because um, as the glaciers are melting there's potentially stuff dropping out of the ice that will spawn and so we were picking up from there um, so we're pretty much from after day two once the camp was set up uh, Fred and I were planned day walks uh we headed out around walrus bay which was just uh an amazing day just first day getting used to being on a island you know getting the sort of lie of the land and coming across the king penguins that would walk up to us and the and then we come across fur seals and, and then the, the larger elephant seals. Seeing the Heard Island Cormorant for the first time around the bay as well and, and there's a um, macaroni and rockhopper colony as well that we came across there. Second day, um, we had some defined um, sampling areas that were imposed on us by uh, Antarctic Division under the permit and our second day walk we decided that we would go as far south in that area as we could around Atlas. So it took us all the way down to the Bordeson Glacier And I think it was by about lunchtime. Fred and I were just. Fred said, turned to me and said, "This is sensory overload. I just, I can't handle any more new stuff." You know, we we'd uh, walked across the Nullarbor Plain. We'd um, walked uh, down Southwest Bay. We'd rounded Erratic Point, and uh, we'd seen all the wildlife on the way down. And Erratic Point, we just came across a whole lot of uh, plastic debris on the island uh and yeah that was almost almost disappointing there was you know we did a count for um tangaroa blue who are uh, a not-for-profit that measure marine debris and uh, we'd agreed to do a count on hurt island and just you know for the record you know 56 drink bottles um four fishing floats uh what else do the four fishing floats um about eight or nine uh, commi- uh Hand cleaning product bottles, um, just the volume of rubbish blew us away, to be honest. There are a lot of fishing ropes on the beach as well, just still coiled but just washed onto the beach.
0: So this was stuff that was left behind by other people or stuff no, no, that's this washed is, up? This is
1: washed up. So we noticed on the western side of the island there's a lot of debris wash, on the eastern side not as much. Um, gas cylinders, uh, you know, just they corroded, 44 gallon drums corroded. Um, so that, yeah, we were surprised at the level of, of that rubbish. Uh, We went all the way down to the glacier um, and came back up and we were really fortunate enough to come across the king penguin colony uh, up near the base of Schmidt Glacier, about 2 maybe 3,000 penguins and even though it was late in the season for the kings there were still chicks in their little brown down jackets and, and it was just for us it was just such a different experience to be able to see them. So we did four or five day walks and then we were lucky enough to have the Braveheart crew take us up by Zodiacs up to Lawrence Peninsula, the northern end of the island. Um, They dropped us off at Sydney Cove and we stayed up there, just the two of us, for three and a half days. Um, And We sort of called it the remotest campsite in the world and I guess if you think about it, it really was. Um, Just two of us. We were lucky the apple the the apple shelter that aad put in in 87 was still habitable um, and we were able to live in there for a couple of days we had i had an objective to climb mount dixon which only 660 meters but it's uh it's windswept it's got snow on the top snow and ice uh, unfortunately, the day we went to give it a go, the winds were just too high, and we got to about 420 metres, I think it was, and we backed off. It just was. Fred was getting blown over. It just wasn't worth us going any further. And the permit required us to stay as a two, so even though he said, "Oh, you, you go ahead," that just wasn't going to happen. So, uh, yeah, so that was a back off. But even there, we were able to collect rock samples. That's probably some of the highest rock samples that have been collected on Heard Island, and they are on their way down to University of Tasmania. For analysis, um, yeah.
0: The samples that you, you you brought home and and brought to Fremantle Harbour, yep. where do they where are they going to?
1: So all of the rock samples are heading down to, uh, like I say, down to the University in Tasmania, and they'll be used by uh, um, somebody doing a PhD uh, down there. The water and soil samples are on their way back to the US, so they're sitting in customs bond now, and they'll be freighted away in the next ten or twelve days, head off to California. Uh, Bob has contacts that will make use of them. Um, he's sort of in that in that sphere, and he'll be distributing them out to people for analysis from there. Uh, so that's where they've gone. Unfortunately, you know, they've they've left Australia, I guess. But that's the way it is. That's where the analysis will take place. Uh, I think there's an intention to put together a publication once we get gather the material back, um, maybe in 12 months' time, and, and just put the scientific
0: piece of the, the project project. Uh, to the end really yeah so how often do scientists actually land on Heard island to actually do what you did
1: uh, last time that i'm aware of was 2003 uh, aad had a team down there they had quite a large team uh, i think they were working in the spit bay area um in lawrence peninsula in the apple we were in there was a note left by somebody who'd been there in 2000 so and then that was one of the things that really blew us away About being in some of the places we went It's like, when did somebody last come here And when is somebody likely to be here again You know, um you know, it's, it's obviously 15 years it looks like since somebody was in the in Lawrence Peninsula. Um, we spoke to the AAD rep when we the Fremantle, and she wasn't aware of anybody being in there since then. So you're thinking we're walking in there for the first time for 15 years, um, and even that was interesting. We were, why do, why are the king penguins so trusting? You know, you only had to sit down, and they would approach you. Uh, I mean the skuas would come and land within a couple of meters of you, or they would hover right beside you in the wind and yet the Gentoo penguin would be timid and shy. It's like the, some of them have a learned fear and some of them have uh, no fear at all. So you know, it's those sorts of things that you know kept us guessing as well.
0: Uh, Bob mentioned a, an occurrence when um, one of the glaciers has receded so much that a lagoon has opened up yep. and this is the first time anybody's actually seen this particular lagoon.
1: Yeah, so that's the southern end of the island stevenson lagoon the i believe the glacier used to come all the way out to the foreshore when we went in there on uh, on the tuesday morning we went in uh, we came into the island by zodiac and then we pretty much crossed the the wave line where the surf was crashing and you come into this lagoon and it would be at least a kilometer a kilometer and a half back from that shoreline where the the terminal face of the glacier is now um so fred and i did some work around the Western side of, of that um, lagoon collecting some rock and water samples and Bob had the opportunity to go right up to Terminal Face and then we uh, all came back into the Zodiac again and went off to the eastern side and once again there's there used to be if you look at the Maps um, that they give you as a, a map of Hurt Island if you can get one is that shows that as a spit of land that stretches between two points and when we got there we were we were in at low tide and um, there was there was some there was some spits, some points of land still showing, but there was definite tidal. Uh, so in the end, I think we'll see the the southeastern corner of the island become an island of of its own because it's essentially eroding away in in those two areas, which are where the land spits across the lagoon.
0: So is there any research on what's happening with those glaciers, where they you know where they went?
1: Uh, there are some there are some publications where I've seen you know the, where the glaciers are receding uh, up at Atlas Cove, interestingly. So uh, there's uh, on the Corinthian Bay, uh, what would be southeastern corner of Corinthian Bay, uh, the Vassal Glacier still fronts right up to the foreshore. So there's no apparent recession of that glacier at all, um, and yet some of the other glaciers on the uh, southeastern corner of Heron, uh are receding quite rapidly. Also, like I said, we went over to um, Vassal Glacier on the northwestern corner of our collection zone and uh, it, it's definitely receded back from the shoreline. But uh, I was fortunate, I've been fortunate enough to also have some time with Graham Budd, who is one of the original members of the Anari team that was down there in. 47 to 55 and he's been back many times and so I've had a look at some of his comparative photos and you can look at the uh, photos from 55, 72 and you can see the glacier both receding back from the shoreline but also collapsing height wise as well. So one of my objectives was to assist Graham and take more photos from points looking out over that glacier so that we can put them into the time series uh, so that we can see the the relative movement since his last photographs of it. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting. Uh, depends where you are, on which glaciers you're looking at on the island, whether they're receding and collapsing, or still fronting into the shore. Um, about three or four days before we left the island, we went back to Corinthian Bay, and uh, there'd been really strong winds and heavy seas that night, and another slab of the. Uh, Bordeson Glacier had carved into the ocean and and the wave action had broken it up and had washed all of the ice cubes onto the the beach and where we'd previously walked across sand we were now walking in ice cubes uh, waist high, knee high and, and massive things and at one point wave came in and washed those and you know we were trying to walk between them and they were pressing up against us so you know it's not a it's not a easy location walk around so it can be pretty unforgiving you get it wrong yeah you've got to be on your game watching what's going on all the time
0: yeah what's your um what's your most treasured memory just being
1: able to get there um i initially went down there when i first signed up to go on the expedition i was hoping to be able to climb big ben Um, and that just uh, the way the expedition evolved that wasn't going to happen and at one point i was trying to make the decision and rationalize the decision why i would stick with the expedition and or whether i should just pull off because my number one objective wasn't going to be there and my wife and i talked about it and and in a way i wanted to go because i'm never going to get this opportunity again and uh, yeah now i'm just so pleased that i went because I w- may not get the opportunity again, but just what I've seen is the island is pristine. Apart from this plastic debris and the, the wash-up debris that we're seeing, it's um, yeah
0: not repeatable, I don't think. So I'm just pleased to have been involved, to be honest. So you were a scientist through and through on the island. Did you touch a radio? <laughs> uh,
1: let, let's just clarify the scientist through and through. Um, I'm an accountant and a project manager. Uh i'm uh, experienced in the outdoors Uh, i spent a lot of time uh, with rescue squads in new south wales and i've been involved with search and rescue in new zealand Uh, the reason i hold a license is more to make sure i'm safe i I got my first license when i was in new zealand um, and that was more somebody wanting to be able to contact me and and make sure i was okay because i was doing a lot of solo walking and training a search dog and when i shifted to sydney back in 2009 uh, my mate said to me, "Transfer your license. You know, keep it current. Don't let it lapse. Maybe you'll have a use for it." A little did I know that six years later, um, I'd be joining Cordell Expeditions, and um, I-, I let slip to Bob that I had a license more because I th- thought I had to justify. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was a radio expedition, and at that stage, it was 35 people going to Hood Island, and and there was a it had more of a. Um, outdoor scientific and radio theme and Bob came to Australia and we met and I mentioned to him that I had a license and it sort of stuck but one of the when the team started meeting uh, with their Skype calls uh, probably three or four months before we took off. Um, I said to everybody look yeah I have a license guys but my objective is to be in the outdoors I'm an outdoors person and don't take this the wrong way but uh, if I'm seeing you in base camp then things aren't working for me I want to be outside of the tent <laughs> and uh, yeah I, I think everybody accepted that as long as I pulled my weight when I was in base camp then um, yeah I hope I hope they think I did so
0: yeah it was a great trip so and that's where it went thank you so very much for your time no problem at all Gavin, uh, Victor Kilo 2, Bravo Alpha X-Ray, thank you so much. No problems.